The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Great singing this morning. Let's start with a word of prayer and ask the Lord to go before us this morning. Father, we come before you this morning singing praises to you because you are worthy, you are holy, you are amazing, you are good. So Lord, today we gather this morning as your church here in Virginia Beach at Cornerstone Bible, just a speck. Our lives are a speck in the universe that you have made. But yet, God, in your infinite being, your almighty power, you choose to use and invite little specks, sinful specks like us, into your amazing, global, universal, and cosmic plan. And so we come to you as your children, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and we cry out to you as our Father. Lord, some of us in here don't have fathers. Some of us in here grew up with pretty poor fathers. Some of us may have had amazing fathers, but none compare to you. And so it is in your name that we come to you, the name of Jesus, your son. By his blood, we boldly approach you, your throne and your kingdom, and we participate actively in what you are doing here in this world. And so we just ask that you would go before us this morning, bless our time together. May your spirit be at work in our lives. We ask these things in Christ's name. You turn to the book of Exodus. Today we're going to be looking at Exodus as it stands in the whole of all of Scripture. So a biblical theological perspective of what the book of Exodus is all about. Some of you have been in our core training class and we have gone through the last seven weeks, eight weeks, minus a few skips. We have discussed some of the finer outworkings, but this morning I want to bring to you this book, amazing in all its grandeur. The book of Exodus will captivate any reader of any age with any form of ADD. It's so amazing. Okay? I mean, this story has stories of villains, evil kings, sorcery, murder, cosmic battle, cataclysmic events, heroes, rescue, miracles. Encounters with the divine. It is a story of deliverance, of salvation. It is a story of a relationship, an intimate relationship of human with the divine. With the creation and its creator. And so today we're going to be looking 40 chapters and 30 minutes. We got some work to do. All right. But I'm going to give you a big overview, and I hope to walk you through the story of Exodus. I'm going to rely upon some of your knowledge. I'm pretty sure that even if you grew up in church or not, you have some semblance of the book of Exodus because we've seen it in the movies. Charlton Heston, 
right? The prince of Egypt. We know a little bit about the exodus and the people of Israel and bondage and slavery in the kingdom of Egypt and God rescuing them, delivering them, and showing to the world that he is God. So the book of Exodus really is a book about God. We've talked about that in Genesis, that the story of Genesis, the story of Noah, is really about God and his, as Stacy said, two things. His what? His character and his plan, right? This is what we've been going through in Exodus and so, or in Genesis, and so Exodus follows Genesis in the biblical canon. It sets as the second book within the first five books of the Pentateuch. And so Exodus is couched in Genesis language. In order to understand Exodus, in order to understand the story, in order to understand its theology, you must first start with the book of beginnings. And primarily, we're going to see that the creation account in Genesis 1 through 3 stands as a formidable foundation for our understanding of Exodus. So, we are going to be looking at the entire book, and I invite you to turn to chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 1, and we are going to be looking at three major questions that this book uh, uh, brings up. This book is divided really into three sections. Chapters 1 through 18 stands as the introduction, and it's the one we're most familiar with. And this section is all about Israel and all about God and all about deliverance and all about the miracles and the stuff that we know. We best know the first part. And it answers the question, who is this God? Okay. Second question that we're going to look at is found in the middle section, chapters 19 through 24. And this is the giving of the law. The people are outside of ex, or outside of Egypt. They're delivered. They're traveling through the wilderness and they get to that ancient holy mountain of Sinai or Horeb. And this question arises within the text, what is this God that has delivered them? What is he about? What is he doing? And in the last portion we're going to look of chapters 25 through 40 is going to answer this question. What is this God, or how does this God relate to humanity? So you can see very, from a big picture view, chapter one is about really deliverance and salvation, and about God establishing who he is to his people. Number two, God reiterates his covenant that is present in Genesis Finds its foundation in Genesis. And then number three, God, despite all of Israel's failures, despite their sin, the rejection of him, their idolatry, you see this God pursuing humanity and desiring to establish an intimate presence a dwelling with his people. All right, so we're going to look at these three uh, questions, and hopefully you will see the answers very clearly in the biblical text. Let's get started. Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. I encourage you to have your Bibles out. We are going to be looking at a lot of passages. If you are writing down things down, I'm going to be throwing passages out there that if you jot them down, I'd encourage you to look at them later. 
Okay, so due to time constraints, we're not going to be able to look at everything. But again, this is going to be a big picture overview. Chapter 1, verse 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died. And all his brothers in all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Okay, so here we go. Right from the get-go, it's, this introduction is tying you, is forcing the reader to understand of what's going on previously. Okay? We have the creation of the world. We have the flood and the Noahic story that we're in now with Stacy. And then you move to Genesis uh, chapter 12 and you have Abraham and God carving out a people through Abraham. And through Abraham, he's going to bless the entire world. And Abraham has that miraculous child in Isaac. And Isaac has Jacob, the younger, who usurps his brother. And then you have Jacob and his 12 sons, massive famine in the land. Joseph, his second to youngest, is kicked out of the family taken to Egypt, to Egypt in slavery, serves in Potiphar's courts, raised to the second highest position, and we know the story of Joseph. The famine comes, and Jacob and his, brother, and his sons, Joseph's brothers, return to Egypt, and there God blesses them. God blesses them through the obedience and faith of Joseph. And we, here we are in Exodus. The descendants are 70 The family of Jacob and his 12 sons are 70. 430 years later, that number is astronomical. It's multiplied, and the story begins. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt, in verse 8, who did not know Joseph. Okay? There's going to be some major themes that you need to follow through this story, and one of them is going to be knowing. Whether you know God or you do not know him. And we're going to look at a few others. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread about abroad. And the The Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter and hard in service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. You know the story. You know the story. And so what I want to do is paint this big picture of what you you need, the pieces you need to know as you move through this story. The king of Egypt, noticed he is unnamed. Remember, Exodus, as is Genesis, is history. But it's not meant for, to be a, simply or purely a history book. It is, as Stacy says, theological history. It is there to tell us something about God. Its purposes is to declare God. And so we have this historical account, but it's cast by the Jewish writer in a sense that is in a world full of symbolism, okay? So the king of Egypt is not merely just a king in time. The king of Egypt in the story represents symbolically everything that stands in opposition to God. 
So Pharaoh and his plan and his purposes are anti-life. God is about life. We learned that last week. God is about life. He is about blessing. He is about fullness. He is about vitality. And when you see this imagery of the king, it is completely opposite. And so as the readers, you must feel the tension in the story because this figure and the symbol of Egypt and Pharaoh stand as a threat to God's eternal plan. They stand in the face, and so the writer pits God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob against the gods of Egypt, and primarily in Pharaoh. So you know how the story goes. He oppresses them. It's brutal slavery. They're growing too big, and you got to catch the creation language in this first portion. Look at verse 6. And Joseph died. What does that sound like to you? Genesis, right? The genealogies. You are supposed to feel the effects of Genesis 3 and the fall. God created the world and he said that it was good. And then you have the fall and we start seeing death and destruction. And this is what Pharaoh is all about. You see that in the story. He, t- he kills, he, he makes an edict for all of the baby, Hebrew babies to be slaughtered. Male children to be slaughtered. He stands as anti-God, anti-creation. Verse 7, the people were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Creation language all over again, is it not? Genesis 1, 28, the, the mandate that God gives to man is to be fruitful. Noah, when he gets off the boat, Genesis chapter 9, be fruitful, do what Cornerstone's doing, multiply greatly, right? So we see this model set forth from the get-go that you have to tie this story into the creation account. It's closely linked to what is going on, and so Pharaoh stands as this figure that opposes God. He's all about death, and so he orders these children to be slaughtered. In the story pits five women. Women in ancient culture, as you know, were insignificant. They were property. But the writer gives these two Hebrew women names. Significant. The women are named, but the king's not. And these two women stand in opposition to God. And you see in the text in verse uh, 17 that they feared God. This fear of God is going to be a huge theme throughout the text of Exodus. If you fear God properly, you will know him. If you don't, if you fear him improperly, you will hide your face. You will not see him. And so here the story begins. It's starting to pick up steam. These two women, insignificant, oppose the Pharaoh. And they they write their own death note. Nope, we're not going to do it. And God blesses them. Look in chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, as his wife, a Levite woman, and the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, a good child, she hid him three months. That language of saw, that he was a good child, is the same language used in Genesis 1, surprise, of what? Who else saw that something was good? God. He looks his creation six times over. He sees his creation and says it is 
good. Another tie that is tying you to Genesis and the created account is that Moses is placed in a English standard version says basket. That's the same word used in Noah. It's an ark placed in a little ark on water. And the irony is so powerful here. Do you see it? Do you see it? Water is a very symbolic, very vivid picture in the scriptures and in Jewish minds of chaos, of disorder. And we've talked about that. Stacy's talked about it over and over again. So in the beginning, water is there in Genesis 1, right? God does not create the it at that time. The water is there. But what God does is divide the water. And he's going to divide the water. The same language is used in the Red Sea crossing in chapter 14 that God divides the water and the people go through on dry ground. In Genesis 1, God divides the water and he creates dry ground. The connections are explicit. Water is symbolic of Egypt. Chaos, disorder. Egypt was known by the Nile. The Nile was known in Egypt. They equated with each other. And so when you see this and you read the story, you have to be picking up on these clues that the writer is giving you. And so Moses, or I'm sorry, Pharaoh commands all the Hebrew babies to be thrown into the water, the chaos. What happens in the Noahic story in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9? All of life, except that was on the ark, dies by chaos, by water. And it is like Moses, like Noah, Moses like Noah, is put on an ark on the water and delivered. So you got to feel the tension, you got to feel the irony that these two women, insignificant, disobey God, or disobey Pharaoh, sorry, the Egyptian gods. They obey God, they fear him, and God delivers him. God delivers Moses. And so these connections are all of there. Later, you understand that Moses is delivered from the Nile, from the water, right? Just like Noah. And it's Nile where the plagues, the ten plagues in Egypt, first take place. And then it's water again in the Red Sea crossing. And the irony here is that Pharaoh commanded Noah to be, or Moses to be tossed into the water. But he's delivered on top of the water. Later, Moses takes the water that God parts, and it's the water that ends up killing the evil king. It's the chaos, the disorder, and everything that symbolizes the waters ends up killing the evil king. And so the tables are turned. A significant motif in this story. Moses, as you know, is rescued by the Pharaoh's daughter. The irony in that story is amazing as well. He's raised by his own mother. (laughs) Raised by his own mother. And then until he was of age, brought to the best, the most powerful court in the known world. And given the best training, the best lifestyle, the amazing amenities that Egypt had to offer. And the story continues in chapter, or chapter 2, verse 11. Moses grew, grows up. 
and he never loses his Hebrew identity, and you know the story. He slays, he slays an Egyptian who is oppressing one of his own. And we see this as a picture in the story where Moses, in his arrogance and pride, to be as a God for himself, to be a judge of justice that only God can be, takes matters into his own hand and slays the Egyptian. And you know the story. He's exiled into Midian. He flees. Pharaoh finds out. So in the first two chapters, we have this amazing story, and the tension is there because God's not really around. These people are suffering. They're under oppression. They're getting beat down. Where is God? The first two chapters leave you hanging. Suspense. The reader is suspended until verse 23. Chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God And you have these amazing four powerful active verbs where God is the subject of all of them. God heard their groanings. He remembered the covenant. He saw the people of Israel. And God knew. God knew. And so we get to the first portion of this study. First question is who is this God? Who is this God? You know the story. Moses in Midian finds a wife, and he's out there for years in the, in the wilderness, sheep herder. Comes to the, again, to the historic, to the monumental Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, and there he encounters the very presence of God, a theophany. God speaks to him out of the burning bush. Moses is afraid. Look at verse 6 with me. I am the God of your father, chapter 3, verse 6, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid. Improper fear. Improper fear. The two women, insignificant, they got the fear right. Moses, improper fear, and thus he can't see God. He hides his face. God comes to him and reveals himself to him and says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. And so he invites Moses to this participate in this amazing plan and purpose of salvation that God established from Genesis. And you follow the story, and he invites this weak, this bumbling idiot of a shepherd to come join him in this task, in this plan. And Moses, verse 11, reveals that he's had a change of heart. Look at what he, how he responds to God. Who am I? You see a complete change in Moses. And now God, can be able, now God is able to use him. And so God, in verse 13, Moses says to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God says, said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to this people of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. 
And so we immediately in the story launch into a little bit about who is this God. He says, I am who I am. And the verb to be carries a dual meaning of I, it's not only the present of God is, but also future of God will be. So I am who I will be, and I will be who I am. And then later you see the divine name of God. It's all caps in the English. It's all caps when Lord is used in, in, uh, when you see the Lord in all caps. And that's the divine name of God. That is Yahweh. And it is derived from the Hebrew verb to be. So God's name is all about who he is. So friends, if you don't get anything from what I'm t- telling you today, if you don't get anything, you fall asleep, don't miss this part. That God is and always will be, period. That's all you need to know. That's the basis, that's the foundation for everything that we do in life is God is. And if you don't get anything else, get this point. That God, if you want to say it philosophically, God absolutely is and always will be. This is foundational, folks. God doesn't, he's not our peer. He doesn't look down on creation and say, wow, I see, I see a young man down there that I want on my team, right? We just recently had our fantasy football draft. It's not like, yeah, I got to have Adrian Peterson on my team. I got to have him on my team because of what he brings to me. God is, period. He's not our peer, He is not someone that needs people, needs us to participate. He is not customer service call center. You call in 24 hours a day with your moans and complaints and needs. Does God love you? Does God want a relationship? Yes. And we see that in Jesus and we'll get there. But you must first and foundationally understand that God is no more. He is your life. He is your direction. He is your purpose. He is everything. And we sing that over and over again, that God is my all in all, that God is all that I need, that God is everything. And yet somehow, there's a major disconnect. I feel it. You feel it. You know it, you see it. We all see it. God absolutely is and always will be. So he tells Moses this. And so Moses moves on. He gives him excuses. God, I can't speak. I can't do it. I can't do this thing. And so God, in his anger, gives him Aaron, his brother, and says, fine, you have a speech impediment. I'll take care of it. Aaron will be your mouthpiece. And Moses fails to trust God. And you look at chapter 4, and it's belief, 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 belief. It's all about believing God. And Moses fails to do that. And so they return to Egypt, him and his older brother. The end of chapter 5, they do signs of the stick on the ground turns into a serpent, the hand into the cloak becomes leprous, and the water turns into blood. And at the end of chapter 4, they do these signs before the people, 
And look at what chapter 4, verse 31 says. And the people believed. They saw in verse 30, and they believed. And when they heard the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and he had seen their affliction, they bowed their head and worshipped. Finally, our cries, our pleas to God, he's here. And then chapter 5, it gets worse. It gets worse. And we stand, and Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh, and look at what Pharaoh says. Verse 2, they tell him to let my people go. He says, who is this Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Who is this Lord Gee, Pharaoh, I'm so glad you asked because the writer's going to give you seven chapters packed full so you don't miss as the reader who is this God. Awesome display of his power. And so this question that, that Pharaoh puts forth stands and hits the reader in the face and you're supposed to answer it as the story unfolds. You know the story. He takes away their straw, still says you have to kick out the 100,000 bricks a day. The people complain, and Moses, in his lack of faith in verse 22, chapter 5, he turns to the Lord and says, Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. God, in chapter 6, says to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand, send them out. So God spoke, spoke to Moses in verse 2 and said to him, I am Yahweh. I am the God who absolutely is, Moses. Come taste and see. Verse 6, say therefore to the people, I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgments. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Monumental text here in chapter 6, and we see this all throughout Scripture. Genesis 17, when God calls Abraham, I will be your God. Jeremiah 24, I will be your God and they will be my people. The people are in exile. Ezekiel chapter 11, I'm going to be your God and you will be my people. And we get to the end of the scriptures, the holy scriptures in Revelation 21. And we see a new heavens and a new earth as John describes. And Genesis, or Revelation 21 says, guess what? And the sea was no more. The chaos, the disorder, gone. And God dwells with his people and says, I will be your God and you will be my people. So we see this Deliverance, salvation in this story, and it is so amazing. It is so amazing. Promises deliverance to Israel. But God's cosmic plan is about all of creation, remember. And so salvation is not just, we talked about this this morning in our core training class, salvation is not just for Israel alone. 
And you see this over and over again. The reason God saves is so that all the world will know. The reason that God saves David Doucette is so that all the world may know that he is. The reason that he calls out, carves out Cornerstone as a church, as his body, is for the world to know. Salvation is not static, folks. Deliverance and the hand of God in your life, the Spirit, is about all of creation. And so you have, you get to Matthew 28, and you, you get to Jesus' final commission, and there's this missional trajectory that, that, that underlies the gospel. The gospel is so that you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. There's this thrust. Our God is a missional God. He is on a mission. His purposes and plans that he started in Genesis 1, he will complete in the kingdom of new heavens and new earth. And this story sits in that trajectory. And so Moses, chapter 6, sees that God is going to deliver. And so we get to chapter 7, 8, and 9, and the, and the miracles, the plagues, the power of God just beats down the gods of Egypt. And you see in the first two plagues, that the magicians, Egyptian magicians, can do the same thing. And so the story heightens that it's the gods of Egypt versus the gods of, I, or the God of Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they're pitted against each other. And then as the story progresses, these gods get smaller and the God, Yahweh, gets bigger. And you feel the tension. Verse chapter 9, verse 16. He says, but for this purpose, I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You're still exalting yourself. So God, as you know, delivers them. Plague, a ninth plague is a plague of darkness. Recreation all over again. God calls light out of darkness, turns the world dark, pitch black for three days. Ten, as you know, the firstborn of everything in Egypt dies. God kills them. And we have the amazing story of the Passover. That Passover lamb, that perfect firstborn lamb, was blood was shed, the blood was wiped on the doorposts. As God went by and he saw the blood, he did not enter and destroy them. And the people inside cooked the lamb or the goat and ate it with unleavened bread. And every year the Jews are supposed to remember the Passover when God passed over them in deliverance and killed the price of life, the Egyptians firstborn. And they are spared. So we get to this monumental text in 14, chapter 14, and they're crossing the Red Sea. They're crossing it, and you feel, you see the tension. Verse 4, the end of verse 4, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 10 of chapter 14, Pharaoh drew near, and the people lifted up their eyes, and behold, they saw the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, wrong fear, sorry. 
Moses tells them, don't have the wrong fear in verse 13. Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, for he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. And you get to the end where God, like I said, in creative terms, destroys the evil king by dividing the waters. The children go across on dry ground. He closes them back up on top of the Egyptian army. And verse 30 says, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared and they believed the Lord and his servant Moses. So chapter 15 leaves you with this amazing doxology of praise to this Yahweh. Ten times his name is used. Ten times his name is used in this song. There were ten commandments in chapter 19. Ten beautiful words from God. You see this pattern over and over again. And so God provides deliverance and salvation in chapter 16, 17, and 18. He provides manna in the wilderness. He provides quail. He provides protection from Amalek. He provides water. We get to 19, and this text stands as a massive portion of Scripture. And so we see the answers to this question in the song of Moses that God sovereignly reigns. God sovereignly reigns, and he demands fear, worship, and belief. Chapter 19 through 24 is the giving of the law. Children of Israel are out Sinai, and God comes to them and speaks to them and gives them the law. A lot of people, a lot of Christians today, struggle with this concept of law because it seems like God's just being kind of a, a prick. He's like got a lot of rules. He's got a lot of... A lot of crazy stuff going on, like, why do I need to do this? Why do I need to do that? Okay, If you understand the story of Exodus, 1 through 18 is all narrative. Okay, The genre is narrative. Law in 19 through 24 is set in a narrative context. So what people do is they pull out the 613 laws in the scripture. Whoop, whoop, whoop. They organize them in categories, neat categories, and they say, you've got to keep all these. right? But the law was given in story form. There's legal, uh, there's legal portions that are inserted in the narrative and they're jockeyed around precisely as the author would have it. And so you have to understand the story before you can understand the laws. The laws exist because the people disobey. Look at chapter 19 for me. Verse 3, Moses went up to God. God called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, Tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, be my treasured possession among all the peoples, oh yeah, for all the earth is mine, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God's design for Israel was to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We're all the people priests. What happened? The story tells you. The story tells you. We're not going to be able to spend as much time as I'd like, but if you see verse 12, verse 11, actually, God tells them to go get ready for the third day. On the third day, the Lord will come on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people. And you shall set limits for the people around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him. But he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, and he shall not live. But when the trumpet sounds a blast, 
they shall come up into the mountain. Okay? Very clear. In the Hebrew, it's even clearer. You're supposed to come up into the mountain when the trumpet blasts. So, verse 16, third day, thunders, lightnings, thick cloud, mountain, very trumpet blasts. People in the camp, they trembled. Moses brought to the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. You see the narrative in chapter 20. There's only three verses. Chapter 20, verse 18, finishes that, that portion of the story. It comes after the Ten Commandments, but it finishes that por- portion, and you see that the people saw the thunder, flashes of lightning, sound of trumpets, Moses smoking, mo- mountain smoking. The people were afraid. The verb is saw. They saw it and trembled, stood afar off, and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. The people disobey. They don't go up. And so after chapter 20, God never speaks to the people directly again. Never. And so there's this distancing of God. You see later down, In chapter 19, verse 24, And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through. Well, guess what? Because Moses elaborates on the the words of God and adds things in a pharisaical manner. Now the priests can't come up. You read the story carefully. Now the priests can't come up. Just in verse 21, God tells them to bring the priests up. And the people keep disobeying, and so there's this distancing away further from God. Unless you have the law. The law was given because of people's disobedience. Look at the people's response to God in verse 8, chapter 19. God says, see all this I'm going to do? I have done, will do? The people's response is, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They make their relationship with God about doing, not being. God already told them. You're my people. But they make it about doing, and so you see the introduction of the law. Look at chapter 24, verse 8. It's not until chapter 24, and the book of the covenant is given. Ten commandments are given. Book of the covenant is given in chapters 21 through 23. 24, the people finally say in verse 8, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. God said, don't let anybody come up to the mountain except for Moses and Aaron. And then you look in verse 9. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. It's not until the Israelites say that we're going to obey. We're going to obey out of faith in you that the people are able to see God. And so we see in this portion of what God is about. He is about his own name and his own glory. He is a jealous God. You see that in chapter 20, uh, 24. God is a jealous God. He's about inviting mankind to actively participate in his global purposes and plans. God wanted Israel to be a kingdom of priests and they fail. They reject him. And so now it's only a select few and so you see this distancing. But we get to the third portion of our passage, and it's chapters 26 through 40, 25 through 40. And it's the tabernacle. Tabernacle runs through chapters 25 through 31, and then you have a break in 32 through 34, and you know what the break is. You know what happens. The people have been given the law. Moses is up on the mountain with God. The people are like, ah, he's not coming back. 
Aaron, let's have a party. Let's celebrate. Let's give you our gold. Let's toss it in. We make a golden calf. And this is our God. They commit idolatry. Stephen Dempster, a theologian, says it's like they committed adultery on their wedding night. Spiritual apostasy of all that God has done. And then they go and do this. You know the story. Moses comes down. He breaks the tablets when he sees him. Angry. They slay 3,000 men, the Levites do. And uh, Moses goes back up into the mountain to get new tablets and to renew the covenant and implore, intercede, and mediate for the people. So we see that God, in extreme patience and graciousness, he also exudes, he continually pursues a relationship with mankind. Look at chapter 34 with me. Chapter 34 is so... So cool. Just amazing. After all this happens, I mean, God wants to kill him. He wants to do what he did with Noah. He said, Moses, guess what? I'm going to start all over with you. I'm going to just kill those ugly people. And Moses says, don't do it. And he invokes the name of God. He invokes God's reputation. He says, don't do it. We see here, 34, verses 6 and 7, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed to him, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses bows his head to the earth and worships. You see in this tabernacle theme and in Exodus, chapter 19 is the giving of the law. We see, if you were in my biblical theology class uh, about a year ago, we see that throughout story, it's about creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Four major themes that the scriptures hinge on. We see this, a microcosm of this in, in Exodus 19. God gives them the covenant. Or not establishes, but reiterates it with them. So you have creation of the covenant. The people reject him. They say, no, we don't want to go up into the mountain. You have the fall, and then you have the giving of the law. And Moses and the people see God, recreation. Big picture, chapters 25 through 40, the people are getting ready for the tabernacle, and you have instructions of the tabernacle. And tabernacle is just a mini version of creation all over again. You see this brilliant tent and all this grandeur in the middle of a desert. You're supposed to think of creation. And you have the instructions for the tabernacle, creation. The golden calf experiences their fall. And the new creation is God establishes his covenant again. And look at the last verse in chapter uh, 40. We'll end. Sorry, verse 34 of chapter 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and says, For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And so we see that Exodus theology points us to Jesus. Okay? This is how we're getting there. We are God's people through Jesus. I will be your God, you will be my people. I gave you the text earlier. We trace it through Scripture. Revelation 21, we are now God's people. We have God living inside of us. Jesus comes and dwells among men. John chapter 1, verse 4. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. And then Revelation 21, again, you see that God creates a dwelling place with his people in the new heavens and new earth. 
and we are all priests to the world. Salvation is not static. Salvation is about all of creation. In Jesus, all of us are priests of the world. First Peter chapter 2, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So folks, God is. You don't get anything else. If you think that it's your career, it's your family, it's your kids, it's this life, you're missing it. As believers, we taste and see the goodness of God and the supremacy of God in Jesus. And so we come back to the gospel. And so I pray, I hope, that the gospel is on your lips every day. It is on your heart, it is on your mind, because that is our existence. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you give to us today. Thank you for your love, your kindness, your graciousness to us, God. We are just like Israel. Man, we always turn. We always rebel. We always find ourselves worrying and fearing the what-ifs. Well, what about my job? What about my child? What about my marriage? What about this, X, Y, Z, you name it? God, may you be the God who is. May we remember and sing to Yahweh because we believe that you absolutely are and always will be. We thank you and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.